We are finishing up chapter 8 in Romans this morning and going to move in next week into the Advent season and sermons. And this morning we want to kind of recapitulate, recapture, and review the things that God has shown us through the power of the Holy Spirit and His Word through Romans chapter 8. And if you've been journeying in this series with us, you'll remember that we studied how God has justified us by faith and faith alone, and that it is expressed that Jesus has come and He is our justifier. And as we have placed our faith in Him, we place our faith not only in Him, but all that He has done for us on our behalf, and so that His righteousness has been imputed to us as our righteousness. And so we came then to this eighth chapter of then, what must life look like as those who have been justified before God, those who stand without condemnation before the Lord. And Paul wrote this glorious chapter that is the beginning of his whole theological kind of manifest that we look at and we develop and we understand what sound doctrine is in the Bible through those things that Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has written to us. This morning we'll finish up by looking at these verses from 31 to the end of the chapter, but I'll be pointing to verses throughout the chapter as we go back. So let us hear the Word of God, written by the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for all of us, how will He not also with Him graciously give all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we come before You to open Your Word, to hear Your Spirit illuminate Your truth within our ears. God, open them wide that we may hear. Open our eyes that we may see. Open our hearts that we would be new and different people. Lord, I pray, O God, that Your Word would so set our hearts on fire that we would be a people of passion for Your glory and for Your kingdom, for our Christ, 
and for one another. Oh God, forgive the sins of the one who speaks. May we see Christ in Christ only. In His name. Amen. So looking back on Romans 8, and even when I began to approach it for our study, I was struck by what, what would be the overall theme of this chapter. How, would, how if I were to break it up into sections, what would those sections look like? And how could I name what Paul might be writing here? And the only thing that could come to my mind after reading 8 over and over after decades of study and, and uh, almost a century of study Thank you, somebody. That was a joke. But decades of study that I might be captured in the understanding that Romans chapter 8 can be surmised in this, the sovereign conquering love of God. That the entire chapter is so focused on God's love and how His love has conquered sin, and how His love has transformed our hearts, and how His love walks with us every day, and how His love is leading us home, and how His love binds us together in Christ for the day of glory that He is driving us to. And how all of this is by His marvelous, controlling sovereignty that every heart and every step that every believer has taken or ever will take is to move deeper and deeper into the heart of God. And Romans 8 is that driving nail that goes into the heart of God for His people's sake that you and I might understand more and more this sovereign conquering love of God. We come up to chapter 8 with the first seven chapters understanding that our God is sovereign. But let's not forget what that word means, sovereign. It doesn't mean that God is reacting. It doesn't mean that God is passive. It doesn't mean that, that there are things outside of God's control. In fact, it means completely the opposite, that every hair on your head is numbered. Every step that you and I take is His step. Every direction that we go is the direction in which He points. And even in life and death and trial and victory, God's sovereign will is present within that to accomplish His good will for our sake to conform us to the image of His Son, Jesus. And that there is nothing, not one random molecule out of His control. As I told you a couple of weeks ago, as Spurgeon said, when you look at the beams of light that come through your window and you see the particles of dust, Spurgeon has said that not one particle is moving outside the sovereign will of God. That means that God controls not only the infinitesimal, but also the infinite. That God fills time and God surrounds time. That God is completely omnipotent. That there is nothing more powerful, nothing that can overtake Him, 
There's nothing exists that is seen or unseen that could ever defeat our Lord. And God is omnipresent. That God is with us everywhere. There's not one place we go that God is not with us, with His people. And so when we understand that we have a sovereign God, there's one more element I'd like for you to understand. God is completely satisfied in His sovereignty and who He is. Apart from anything else in creation, God is separate from all things. God does not need one thing in the entire universe, seen or unseen. God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are so contained and in love with themselves that there is not one ounce of lack in anything about them. What might it be like to be satisfied in everything? I'm not talking about just satisfaction after a turkey sandwich where you lay on the couch and the fire is burning, your feet are up on the ottoman, and you pat your tummy and you go, oh, all is well with the world. Because heartburn's just around the corner. <laughs> no, I'm talking about what would it be like to be so joyful you're satisfied in your joy? What would it be like to be so love that you're satisfied in your love? What would it be like to be so wise that you're satisfied in your wisdom? What would it be like to have such knowledge that you are completely satisfied in your knowledge? What would it be like to be in relationship with another as God the Father is in relationship to the Son and the Spirit? To be completely satisfied in that relationship. To be completely satisfied in the way that you have adoration one for another. To be complete and not needing one thing. To know that all aspects of who you are is perfect and eternal and all-powerful. What must that be like? You see, you and I, it's important that you and I begin to grasp as hard as that is to get our hands and heads around that. It's important that you and I begin to grasp the enormity of who God is. Because until we grasp that enormity of who He is, we can never grasp how small we really are. And if we never grasp how small we really are, we will never understand the grace that is ours in the way that He loves us. This is what it means for God to be sovereign, to be all-powerful, to be omnipotent, to be omnipresent. This is what it means for God to be completely God. And it is from this source, it's from this knowledge, from this understanding that we hear the first words that we could ever begin to process let us make Him in our own image. The idea of a sovereign God without any need or want that is so about love, so about His joy, so about the expression of His beauty that He reveals it. And in the revelation of it, He says, let us create creatures in our image 
so that we could be in relationship with them, give them eyes and ears and minds and hearts and spirits that can relate to us in relationship, that they might know this joy, that they might know this beauty, they might know this glory, they might know this satisfaction and peace within me. That they may know how much I love them. By honoring them and giving them dignity by being made in my image. And of course, this is what the sovereign God chose to do to make us in his image. And our response was to say, God, I wish you were dead so that I might take your place. I will be my own God. I will devise my own ways. I will make my own plans. I will refuse your love. And in that rebellion... Death came upon us. But the sovereign God has chosen to redeem from the dead those who are His. And in that redemption, He has poured out His own blood through His Son Christ because of His love for us that we enter into this first verse of chapter 8 with these words. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's the conquering love which conquers condemnation. Paul starts out with this. There is now therefore no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Why? For the law the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus. You see, what God did was He switched the condemnation from you over to Christ. Paul goes on to say, it's in His flesh, on the cross, in His crucifixion, that God removed from you your sinful death and placed it on Christ, who would die your death for you, so that you might live in the Spirit from that point on. It's the most amazing transaction that you'll ever know. It should be transforming and life-changing and set our hearts on fire that God would hand over His Son Christ to be crucified for your sake and for my sake to transform us into those who walk and talk and live by the Spirit. He would go on further to say, That He did this. He condemned His sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be what? Fulfilled. Completed. Done away with in us. How did God love you and I? How did He conquer you and I? By conquering our condemnation that we were under. Paul says this is the first place that you must start your walk with the Spirit is to realize you're no longer condemned. That God is not and never will be angry with you again. 
that God is not and will not ever be disappointed with you. You will fall. You will trip and you will stumble, but God will hold on to you. You say, how can I know, Pastor? How can I know God won't be disappointed with me? As I've told some of you before, because God's omniscient, He already knows you. You're not going to do anything. For God to be disappointed, what? God would have to be surprised. It's some behavior that you might do. It would be, oh my word, Jesus, did you just see what Brad did? He really messed up. What will we do? Oh, what will we do? I'm so disappointed in him. There is not a conversation that will ever happen like that in eternity in heaven about anyone who is in Christ because that disappointment was dealt with at the cross of Christ and the condemnation that came with that disappointment has been buried with Christ in the grave once and for all and forever and the glory of Christ is upon you to live once and for all and forever out of condemnation. It is time for us who follow Christ, to let go of the shackles that hold us back from expressing the great joy we have and not being condemned any longer, but a free people. Free to live as God would call us to live. Free to live in the spirit that God has given us to live within. Because the requirements of the law have been fully met in Christ Jesus. So that even death of our flesh cannot reign over us any longer. Not only does it show us the sovereign love that we conquered, that's conquered condemnation, but Paul also showed us this sovereign love which brings us a new life in verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors. Not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you're going to die. But if you live by the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And by extension, daughters of God as well. You see, Paul says this. You and I are obliged. This word debtors is the word that means obligated We have a debt. We are under contract. We are under a contract that is written in the blood of Christ. But that contract is not to live any longer by the means of human reasoning or by the means of human understanding or by the means of human righteousness or by the means of self-reliance, by the means of self-righteousness. But it's a contract. It's a debt we owe to live by the love of God for us in the Spirit of God and all that He commands us to do. It's a living, breathing, eternal document of a covenant between God the Father and God the Son that as He enters us by the power of the Spirit, our lives are transformed to no longer live for self, but to live for the Savior. And we are obliged, we are in debt to love the Savior more than we love anything or anyone else in the world. You say, well, that seems a little 
odd or unfair or challenging? You betcha. It is challenging. I don't think Lee will mind. I talked about her when she was out of town. It's a little different when she's sitting in the front row. Grace. So we, when we were engaged, Lee asked me, do you love me? Oh, she said, I, I love you more than anything. Do you love me? I said, I do love you. And then she said, well, more than anything? And I said, I, I do love you more than any human being. Yeah, but do you love me more than anything? I love Christ more than I love anything. So that I can love you with my everything. You see, it's only by the love of Christ is our priority. It's only by the love of Christ is our driven compulsion that we can truly begin to understand what it means to love another human being, much less ourselves. You have heard it said before, well, you can't love someone until you learn to love yourself. That's bunk. You don't even know how to love yourself. It assumes you have that wisdom and that knowledge. You can't even love yourself until you understand how much Christ loves you. Why is that true? Because He's the origin, the founder, the existence the very essence of all that love is. And without Him, we can never know what love really means. So you see, by that love, we're obliged, we're indebted, not under a yoke of fear, but of a place of freedom. This says, Lord, because You have loved me so much, Paul says further, I'll live without fear. 15, for you did not receive a spirit of slavery and to fall back into fear. But you received a spirit of adoption as sons and daughters. Remember back the sovereign God we began with? The God who needs nothing? The God who lacks for nothing? The God who's totally satisfied in all of who He is? Has chosen to make you into His image for the purpose of receiving that love? Not so you just might be a, a puppy or a beagle that receives a pat on the head from his master? Or a slave that gets a, a pat on the back of good job? But you get the blessing of a God who places His hands on you, on your chest right above your heart, and says, Son, daughter, you're mine. Not only are you mine, because then if you're my children, you're heirs. You're fellow heirs with whom 
Christ. You see, the love of God, the sovereign love of God, brings you a new life. It brings you a new life to understand these two truths. One is, you're His. And the second is, you're a co-heir with Christ. A story I've told of a father who had four sons and a buddy of his at work came up and said, Hey, what, what is it like, what is it about your kids that you really like? What is it about them that you, you really love? And he, he thought for a minute or so and kind of went through his mind about each kid's individual gifts and talents and the ways that he's been blessed by his four kids. And about two minutes later, he came up with this answer. He said, you know why I love them? He said, why? He said, because they're mine. And you see, that's exactly how God feels about you. If you are in Christ, God doesn't love you because you're perfect. God doesn't love you because you're just a, you're a Republican or Democrat or a male or a female or white or black or, or uh, Asian. or It doesn't matter. Those things don't matter at all. The only thing that matters is that you have reached up by the power of God, the Holy Spirit, and said, I belong to Christ and He belongs to me. And I'm in Christ and He's in me. And because of that, I realize this truth. He calls me son. And He calls me daughter. And heir. With His Son, Christ. September the 2nd, 1945. The surrender of the Japanese troops to General MacArthur. On the deck of the boat, there was the ceremony where they were signing the treaty agreement or the surrender agreement. General MacArthur sat down with his Parker pen and signed it, Mac. And they handed that pen over to General Wainwright, who had been in prison for much of the war and tortured. And he wrote out, Arthur. And he handed the pen to General Percival. And he wrote, General. You see, MacArthur, what he did was he acknowledged those. He brought in those who were part of the battle in the same way that Christ's love for you and I allows us to share in His glory. Certainly, MacArthur could have said, yes, I did this. He would have had every right to. He was the leader of the Pacific campaign. But in His benevolence, He chose to include those who were warriors as well. In the same way, Christ has all the glory, all the power. It's all His. The victory is all His. We didn't do one stinking thing to lift a finger. And yet he says, come. Come, sons. Come, daughters. Hold on to the pen of my glory because I'm going to share it with you. So not only do we have this love that conquers condemnation, this love that brings us a new life, but we have this love too, Paul says, that will lead us home in verse 22. 
For we know that the whole of creation has been groaning together with the pangs of childbirth unto now, not only the creation, but we ourselves, who are the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait for the eager, eagerly for the adoption of sons and daughters and the redemption of our body. The day is coming when we will be home. We will have new bodies similar to the body of Christ. We will be able to walk through doors and have a fillet of fish. We will be able to see the world fully redeemed with fully redeemed eyes. We will be able to smell smells that have been fully redeemed and purged of sin. And the odors that will come to us will be redeemed odors that we will smell with our redeemed nostrils. We will touch things that used to have stickers and thorns. And the pain will be no more because our fingertips will be redeemed. And we will know what God's glory is because we will have glorified bodies that can contain the view of His beauty. We know that's true because in this leading home, God has given us the incarnational ministry of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, God Himself who dwells within us. How little we rely upon Him. How little the realization is that God Himself is within me all of the time. Paul would say in Ephesians, it's the very power, it's the same power that rose Christ from the dead that dwells within you and I. Are you and I people who understand the eternal, heavenly power that is within us as we go out there? It is the power that can overcome fear. It is the power that overcomes self-reliance. It's the power that overcomes depressions. It's the power that overcomes addictions. It's the power that overcomes poor self-image. It's the power that has us afraid of our circumstances. It's the power that helps us to overcome fear of death. It is the power that will push us forward for the rest of eternity. And also that we are sealed for Him by this Holy Spirit who will never leave us, who will never abandon us. It is the Spirit within us that has us cry out, Abba, Father. And then lastly this morning, The sovereign love which binds us. Verse 37, Paul says, Knowing all these things, we're more than conquerors. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor present things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus.
more than conquerors. Not because of anything that we've done, but because we have faith in the One who has conquered all things with and for and by His love. You see, God is truly justice. It's true. God is truly sovereign, and that's true. But God is also love. And for those whom know the redeeming love of God, you understand the conquering power of God's love over your heart. And in His victory, you understand you're more victorious than you ever could have been on your own. You see, the Greeks would have thought, your fate is in the stars. The Romans thought pretty much the same thing. The fate is in the hands of the gods who control the stars. Some of us believe our fate is in our own hands. Some of us are concerned over the future because we believe we're in control of the future. I've said it before, bear saying again, God is not interested in your results. Let that sink in for just a moment. God is not interested in the outcomes that you try to devise. God is solely interested in our faithfulness. That He has the outcome in hand for His glory that you and I get to share in. Even the outcome of my life is in the hand of God. What God calls me to do in that moment, in this day, in this pulpit right now, is to be faithful to Him in this moment. Trusting Him that He will use this moment for His glory, for your benefit, and for my salvation. Anything else that I have in my mind beyond that is conjecture, conjecture, and amateur sovereignty. And what God calls me to understand is this, my fate is not dictated by anything other than Christ Jesus. He's the one who holds my life in His hands. Psalm 139, every day written for me was written in your book before one came to pass. Christ Jesus, the quote, not a hair from your head will fall. There's not a sparrow that falls to the ground outside His will. It is God who holds us. It is God who leads us. It is God who protects us. It is God who provides for us. And it is God who will get us home because we can never be separated from this conquering love of God ever again. Because Christ 
has completely and fully loved you and has kissed you with the kiss of salvation. read an article not too long ago about a doctor who was asked, what's one of the most beautiful things you've seen in your medical practice? He said, one of the most beautiful things I saw was a husband and a wife in their interaction in a room after her surgery. Similar to the story we heard this morning, the reality that we heard from a story from Joan, this young woman had a tumor in her cheek, which was actually benign. But they wanted to cut it out. So they cut it out. And when they did, they cut a crucial nerve in her face that caused her lips to droop and become deformed. And the doctor said one of the most beautiful things I ever saw was his husband and wife in the interaction after the surgery. When he looked at her and the husband says, you know, I kind of like it. It's cute. But then in the dim light of the hospital room, he saw that husband do something miraculous or wonderful. He contorted his lips to match her lips and gave her a kiss. This is the conquering love of God for you and me. That Jesus would come, not as a faraway distant God, but as one of us. And he would take on our flesh so that he might kiss us. As the heirs of all that he has. Paul says, this is what you were destined for. This is the reality in which you live. And this is the root of the tree of which you grow from. And so this love is the love that binds us to God, but it's also the same love that binds us to one another. How could we ever be loved the way that we've been loved by God and contain it in such a way that we would refuse to love someone else with that love? How could we ever have been awakened from the death that we know and not be propelled to find those who might come alive in Christ? How can it become all about us when He has loved us with a love that was all about Him? You can look at the applications. I'm going to just, because of time this morning, I'm just going to sum them up with this. I miswrote this, number one, awaken the heart which beats in you. It's better phrased this way, awaken to the heart that beats in you. It is the heartbeat of heaven. All you have to do is trust it. That it's true. And live out of that. This love that you have been expressed 
and received is the love that you and I are called to give. Why? For the sake of His glory. It is how He has chosen to glorify Himself. It's what says, Martin Luther has no higher place in heaven than I do. John the Baptist has no closer place to the throne than I have. Mother Teresa is not closer to the fires of heaven than I am. Paul was no more a saint than you and I are saints. And we were called to no less a mission than they were also called to. Which is to share the love. The conquering, sovereign love of God. This is your destiny. Let's pray.